Welcome to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. On this show, the team of experts from Bright Horizons College Coach aim to demystify college admissions and finance. From choosing the right college, developing a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and more. Each episode will help guide your family through the various steps of the process. Now, here is your host. Welcome, everyone, to today's episode of Getting In a College Coach Conversation. I'm Sally Ganga from College Coach. Congratulations to all the seniors who have completed all or at least most of their applications. Hopefully now you can enjoy the rest of your senior year. And this is going to be a really fun show. Our second segment is going to be with Nick Mayerneck, who is College Coach's UX or user experience designer, about what he does and how he arrived at this career. And I think this is going to be really interesting to people, given how many are interested in computer science and kind of all the different things computers can do. For the third segment, I'll be interviewing Quinn Kelly, musical theater student at NYU's Tisch School, and she'll be telling us all about her experience getting a BFA. Um, But first, if you're watching this on video, you can already see Amy Yorsener, you're going to have to correct that for me, Um, college coach finance expert about debt and how to repay it. So welcome, Amy. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. So it's your saner or your saner, like you're saner than I am, which is probably true. (laughs) Maybe. It's very debatable. But... Um, all right. So this whole segment is about debt. And so yes. I think the first question, people assume that all debt is bad debt sometimes, right? But uh, what would you say about that? I would say debt isn't necessarily good or bad. It is. But then you're going to hear me sound like I'm going to contradict myself because is there what's considered good debt and bad debt? Yes. But as a theory in its whole, debt is not a bad thing you need it in your life. So, you know, most people know what debt is. Debt is it's something you owe. Common types are your mortgage, car payments, student loans, credit cards, anything like that, right? So what people don't necessarily understand about debt and why they think it's a dirty word or, or you know, what have you, there's a lot of misnomers out there. Um, it's necessary to build your credit, which people don't necessarily think of it in that perspective. Because our credit scores are determined by our ability in how we use our debt and our income to repay that debt. So if you never take debt, you're never going to be able to demonstrate a credit history. You're never going to be able to make those life purchases like homes, cars, education, and in a lot of apartments, we'll do a credit check just to rent an apartment. So it's important to kind of establish that you can take a debt and you can make payments on that and pay that back in a timely manner. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's so, actually interesting. I used to have credit card debt, but I always paid on time. Yes. And my credit his my credit number was actually higher then than it is now that I have no debt other than my mortgage, which I find right. sort of shocking, but there it is. It's it's crazy. I think I had I always say I'm not just a debt management. I'm not a guru by any means, but I am an experienced user of debt management practices <laughs> and I call myself a self-proclaimed debt survivor. <laughs> Because, yeah, I call my 20s my young, fabulous and broke years Mm because, yes, I didn't have a solid understanding of how debt worked and what's debt management and how much is too much debt. I just didn't understand because we get our models from those around us. And I just how my family managed debt versus what other families do, two different things. So I learned a lot um, to get myself kind of out of that spot. But just know that it's okay. Debt doesn't need to be scary. But you're right. You don't even realize. I thought having all this credit card debt when I was younger was going to be 
a bad thing for me. But when I pull my credit score, I'm like, wait, what? I didn't understand. Mm -hmm. um, and you're right. I've had I don't have as much debt now. And I'm like, wait, what? Why is my credit score here versus you would think it'd be higher considering I'm pretty solvent with that. But mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, it, the rules are not always what's beneficial for yeah. the individual either. Um, so let's talk about that. Actually, why is managing debt uh, important? It really it really is about managing that score and managing your ability to borrow to borrow down the line. But really what I want to get at here is debt management is, it sounds like a big word. It sounds like a big burden over your head. And I think it's because anytime you talk about money, people get st immediately stressed and they're like, oh, I owe money and I can't possibly owe money um, because they think that's the end of the universe when it's really not. But debt management is really just putting a plan in place. It's how are you going to pay that back? Another good word for that is budgeting or, you know, make, meeting your financial planning goals. So it really is marrying that financial planning and budget idea together to come up with a plan to, to lower your debt and eliminate it if that's what, you know, the ultimate goal is. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And what about debt to income ratio? I think that's a really even less familiar concept to people. Yeah. So when a lot of creditors or lenders are looking to, to give you money, they're going to look at what this ratio is. So let's kind of break that down. It's essentially all of your monthly debt payments divided by your monthly gross income. So that number is just one of the ways that they'll measure your ability to manage um, your monthly payments and repay um, repay what you've borrowed or what you plan to borrow. So that debt to income percentage is usually saying or essentially saying that um, the percentage, that percent is what your, the, let me back step in there, I'm obviously stumbling over, but essentially that number is saying what is the percentage of your monthly income is allocated to debt payment. Mm -hmm. So that's essentially what it is. So it really is just identifying that percentage. So the lower the number, the better that is. 36% is considered excellent. 43% is good. 45 is acceptable. Anything over 50 is really pushing that max. Um, it's really important because again, the lower that percentage is, the better the interest rate you're going to get. So again, this is beyond debt. This goes into another whole area of, okay, what interest rate are you going to get on your mortgage, your car, your credit cards, any kind of debt that you're going to borrow? Mm -hmm. um, so m being able to show that you can manage your debt gives the confidence and it reduces the risk for the lender when you have a lower debt to income ratio. Mm -hmm, mm hmm. And that kind of thing is super important. I mean, for a mortgage, having one percentage point lower on your mortgage is such a huge savings as for one sure. example. Yeah. Um, do you need a debt management company? I mean, the ads say you do. The ad, yeah, definitely the ads will make it seem like you couldn't possibly do this on your own. I'm here to tell you, no, you do not need to hire somebody to do that. And if you think about that, you're like, why would I need to pay someone when I'm already trying to pay down debt? So now you're going to expend cash over here where you could actually put that to your debt. So do you need it? No. I plan to give you some methods to start out with that you can take a look at and find what's the best for you. You can create your own plan because nobody knows your budget. Nobody knows your income better than you. So you've got this. Um, so definitely you don't need to pay somebody to come up with these, with the, with the options. Mm -hmm. Great. All right. So what are some of those approaches um, to managing debt and the pros and cons of each one? So the first one I want to talk about is the snowball method. You may have heard it um, out there before, but essentially 
It's about ignoring the interest rates and starting by listing out all of your debts based on how much you owe from the smallest to largest. So you'd be making the minimum payments um, on all of the debt and pay as much as you can each month to eliminate the smallest one first. So after you pay the smallest one, then you go to the next smallest one and the payment that you were making on that smallest, on the original smallest one, you're gonna make to the next payment. So you would add that to the minimum payment that becomes your new payment. So you can then tackle that debt too. Um, the pro of that is it gives you the motivation because it's in the psychological boost of that small win, which to be perfectly blunt and honest, it's the method I used when I was paying off my debts, listing them all out, seeing where I was, seeing how close I was. I needed that small win to keep going and keep disciplined in sticking to my monthly budget. The con about that, um, is it's more about behavior modification than it really is about the math. Because if you look at the interest rates on your higher balances with your higher interest rate, that's gonna accrue a higher money. But in the grand scheme, you gotta see what what is the psychological benefit you need as an individual. For me, it was that small win. I needed to feel like I was taking back my financial freedom um, and having those wins. So that was the driver for me. The next one is the avalanche method. Um, it's really any excess in your money, any excess money in your budget is allocated to the debt with the highest interest rate first. So you're going to disregard minimum payment amounts and you're going to list all of your debt by interest rate. So higher, you're starting with the highest and then working down to the lowest. Um, when that first balance is paid off, again, kind of like the snowball, you would go down to the next highest and add the payments there. So it's a little bit of a combination, sort of. Um, so this focuses why it's beneficial is, or why it's a pro, is since the focus is on that more expensive debt first, it helps bring down the amount of interest you're going to pay over the life of that debt. So um, to see it visually, take a look at, you can look at your credit card bills. Um, if you carry a month-to-month -month balance and you do pay the minimum payment, you, it'll usually tell you how much, how long it would take you to pay off and then how much your ultimate payoff would be with that interest accrual. And it can be pretty staggering. So that's why, you know, there's a focus on, okay, let's pay off that high interest. Um, so that's one way of looking at it. Again, you'll pay a little less over time. Um, the negative is it does take more com commitment and discipline because you're not going to have that short-term gain to keep you kind of motivated to continue on, um, particularly if the one at the highest interest rate is a pretty high balance. So just keep that in mind. So if you need the little wins, this plan probably isn't the best for you. The next one, I promise I won't talk forever, but I've got two more for you guys today. Um, the next one is called the debt fireball method. That one is really a hybrid of the snowball and the avalanche. It really, this is gonna come back to, their debt isn't good or bad, but sometimes it is. So they're, they're gonna have you categorize it as good or bad. And in their terminology, good and bad mean, is in reference to your interest rates. So it's considered good debt if your interest rate is less than 7%. If it's over 7%, it's considered bad. So I only want you to think of debt as good or bad only if you're tackling this method, all right? Because mm -hmm. <laughs> debt in and of itself, as I already said, is not really bad, it just is. So make your lists, you're going to keep the good debt, you're gonna focus on the bad debt first, because again, that's where the avalanche comes in, that's where you're paying the higher interest first, that's considered the bad debt, and, and saving the minimum payments for, for that good debt. So you're going to um, list 
from the smallest to largest on the balances. So that's like the snow, snowball method. So you're focused on that bad debt with the higher rates, but you're going with the smaller balance first and you're working your way up. So that's how they, they combined. So when that one's painful, you go to the next smallest, you pay that one off. So you, the, it's kind of a win-win because you're targeting those higher interest rates, but you're also getting those short-term wins. The negative, if you want to dump all of your debt before investing, this may not satisfy you know, your need um, to make even low interest debt a priority. So it's also not as efficient as the avalanche method, because again, you're, you're not necessarily focused on the most cost effective, you're focused on those balances. Um, and then that really the last option I, I say to, to folks uh, is you could consolidate your, your debt with a personal loan, but I would say be careful there. Uh, a lot of times you're definitely just wanna check the interest rate on these personal loans that you may get through your bank or if you have you know one card that you could consolidate because interest rates on personal loans can be pretty high if you had a credit card that had a balance that you could consolidate it all into one you also want to be careful there because what a lot of creditors will do is when they see your balance increase they're going to be like oh we're concerned about your debt and then they're going to increase your interest rate because they're so concerned about your debt so just be careful that what that option maybe could be more expensive for you as a whole. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, all right. Well, Amy, thank you so much. I think sure. those are such helpful tips. Uh, Honestly, it's my pleasure. If you guys have any questions, definitely let us know. We're happy to have any conversations mm-hmm. folks need to have. Yeah. We have a lot of information on our blog post or definitely. our blog page. So blog.getintocollege.com is a really good resource too. All right, so now we're going to take a short break, and then when we return, I'll be talking with Nick Marinick, our UX designer. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. College admissions can be stressful, but Bright Horizons College Coach is here to help. Our college experts who worked in admissions and financial aid at some of the nation's most selective institutions offer ethical, customized assistance based on each student's individual strengths and interests. Students receive one-on-one guidance throughout the process, and our 100% success rate means all of our students have been accepted to college. Visit GetIntoCollege.com to learn more. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Getting In, a college coach conversation. To submit a question for an upcoming listener Q&A segment or to suggest an idea for a future segment, please send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, everyone, and welcome, Nick. Uh, Thanks so much for joining us on the show. Thank you so much, Sally. It's great to be here, and I'm excited to talk about my favorite topic. Mm -hmm. So you are a UX designer, which I had to look up. It means user experience. Um, So let's start with kind of what is a UX designer? Like, what is your job? Mm -hmm. Like, what's the necessary skill set? What kinds of things does it combine? You know, let's, yeah, dive right in. 
Yeah, I'd love to. Uh, so UX does, in fact, stand for user experience. Uh, you found that. Uh, glad to glad to hear that it's it's being easily defined on the internet. Um, but unfortunately, user experience doesn't really tell us what I do on a day-to-day -day basis. Uh, the term user experience was coined by a man named Don Norman from Apple, uh, I believe in the 80s. Um, now he's a cognitive psychologist and he's written a bunch of books. Um, but user experience effectively means everything that happens to you from the moment that you discover a technical product, so um, an app or a website effectively, uh, from discovering it all the way to the final time that you use it. So everything from how easy it is to find what you want to how you feel using it, uh, to everything within a term that we call your context of use. So how much time you have to dedicate to something, how stressed you are about whatever you're using our app for. Um, and currently I'm doing that uh, for College Coach. Uh, we're starting to uh, assess the, the current state of our apps and try to look to the future in order to give people uh, more optimal experiences. Mm-hmm. Okay. So what kind of an education did you need for it? Because it's it's not quite just computer yeah. science, right? No, it is very much not computer science. Uh, although I do work with people who studied computer science or computer science on a daily basis. Um, so I actually started studying computer science. I took a very non-traditional track into my career. And I think that's pretty standard with people in UX. Mm -hmm. um, but I started at college at Villanova when I was 18. I was studying computer science for two years. Um, prior to that, in high school, I had a hobby of designing and building tiny apps. Uh, that was really at the beginning of the App Store boom, and I found it incredibly cool. Uh, I started jailbreaking my iPod Touch. And when I finished with that project, I, I started learning to build apps, and I assumed that computer science would be my, my natural track. Uh, however, I found that uh, in my intro courses, learning about Java and functions was not really the same like eclectic experience that I was used to in building functional apps. Um, and I had a tiny work study at the time uh, working on a, a small app there. Um, so after my sophomore year, I decided to take two gap years um, and actually attempt to work in the industry designing and developing apps. Um, and I had a few tiny clients, uh, a few small contracts to keep me going during that time and assessing what I really wanted to do. And during that time, I learned so much from making really terrible apps that didn't work well, uh, that it is not just about building something that is incredibly technically sound. It's about understanding who is actually using this and what they care about. Mm -hmm. um, and in order to learn about who people are and what they care about optimally, uh, I turned to psychology. And fortunately, I live very close to Lafayette College. Uh, so I transferred there and they had an incredible psychology program. In my first year, I took a course called Human Factors and Engineering Psychology, which was all about UX. Um, but actually, it goes sort of beyond UX. Uh, UX uh, was derived from a field within cognitive psychology called Human Factors. Uh, so about like... Uh, Human factors came about by looking at uh, the arrangement of buttons on planes um, during World War II. So it has a, a very 
storied history in looking at the nature of physical products. Um, but naturally, the mental models that go into using physical products are very similar to that of using software. Uh, so I fell in love with psychology, as you can tell. Uh, and I finished my undergraduate degree there. I graduated in 2021. And uh, after graduating, I took a few months to build out my portfolio because the UX hiring process, since there is such a, a broad field of entry, um, is really heavily focused on how you can demonstrate that you can design an app well and execute the processes from discovery to handoff and everything that comes in between. Uh, so it's important to have either a website or a slide deck about products that you've worked on and your methodology and ultimately outcomes. Um, so I, I compiled that. It took me about three months to get it to my, my standards uh, and then began the interview process and joined Bright Horizons uh, as my first real corporate UX role uh, in March of 2022. Mm -hmm. So did you do, were there any sort of... Um... I mean, we have a sense of your education, kind of a combination of computer science, com certainly computer classes, um, but also psychology classes. But what about, and then building apps, which is kind of something you did clearly on your own, but were there extracurricular activities? Like, how did you, like, get started on the app thing? Did you just figure it out on your own? Did you work with other students? Uh, like, talk a little more about that. So, uh, admittedly, when I tell the story of this, it seems very like self-centric. Like I spent time uh, reading documentation about a language called Objective-C to learn how to code. Um, and at that time, uh, there wasn't a ton of resources available for self-study. Um, but I was going to this local networking event uh, called Lehigh Valley Tech. I don't know if it's still, um, functioning today, but it was just a group of professionals who were networking, who took me under their wing and shared with me everything that they knew and gave me little projects to work on and critiqued my apps. Um, and one thing that I found that was really helpful uh, was joining something called a hackathon. I'm not sure if you're familiar or if your uh, listeners are familiar. A hackathon is basically like one long weekend and all right, so we, we got cut off there just for a moment. We had a little technical difficulty, but Nick, you were telling us about the hackathons, that those were particularly useful? Yeah, a hackathon is really, was really useful for me because um, you're basically building something from scratch and uh, you're, you're working with a small team and those teams are usually more technically focused um, and they're often looking for designers because a well-designed app provides a lot of polish that can help you win something like that. Um, and I've always found that developers at hackathons are always welcoming designers. Um, also, there's just a ton of online resources and online communities for UX. Uh, one that I've thought of a lot is uh, a Discord server called Design Buddies uh, that one of my colleagues had recently told me about. Um, which is all about people who are learning UX for the first time, who are in their first jobs, perhaps, or in college, um, who are looking for mentorship from a greater community. Um, and like, there's a lot of camaraderie in that. Uh, there are a lot of people who grew their careers from organizations like that who often like to uh, contribute back into the community. 
Um, so I can highly recommend those. Uh, there's also a lot of open coursework that I think is really relevant. Uh, Google just launched their own UX certification uh, based on some of their practices. I believe that's on Coursera. Um, a course I took that I found really valuable was one called Shift Nudge that focused more about like, the visual design polish of an app. Um, and that came with its own community. Uh, so there's really a lot of like extracurricular learning that can be done because it the field is so grassroots. Mm -hmm. Would you say that that is part of how you were also able to kind of get your job or was it more about building your resume or do things like that help people make connections? I mean, I don't know that there's a ton mm -hmm. of Bright Horizons college coach people at Hackathon, so it might not have helped you get our job. No, but... <laughs> yeah. no I see where you're coming from. Yeah. So while I did not network my way into Bright Horizons, I applied randomly on Indeed one day and mm -hmm. got a call about an interview. Um, what I found particularly helpful about courses like that and hackathons in general is that it gave me a list of projects where I could do real UX work, see the fruits of my labor, and refine my skill sets each time. Mm -hmm. And that's really the core of UX interviews in general, which is tell us about something you've worked on in the past, what did you learn from it, how did your perspective change, what methods did you apply, and what were the ultimate outcomes. Um, and trying to answer those interview questions without having spent a decade in the industry is really hard. Uh, so you have to sort of create your own little resume. Uh, but fortunately, it's been my experience that employers recognize that young people haven't had that career experience. And thus, like, those tiny projects are the thing that gets you into the industry because it establishes that you're thinking about problems in the same way that people in the field are, or at least that you're open to exploring things like that. Mm -hmm. So I think that I think I came into interviews more prepared for having done those. And it made my actual hiring process much more interesting. And for what it's worth, um, it's interesting to share Bright Horizons had a really interesting interview process because my final stage was about redesigning a part of College Coach. Uh, so my now product manager, Cindy, had uh, sent me a video of this scenario where she had walked through um, scheduling an appointment with one of our experts. Um, and she asked me to basically explain how I would tackle assessing the usability of that experience and what changes I would make. Uh, so I spent like 48 hours, I took time off from my, my previous role and uh, I stared at my whiteboard for a long time, diagramming apps and explaining how I would run testing. Um, and ultimately I, I came into that interview with so many unnecessary screens of how I thought that college coach could work differently. It's so funny because now that I understand how college coach works, so much of it made sense that I didn't think made sense at the time. Um, but yeah, you're effectively in order to get into this field, demonstrating your value by doing 
this mm-hmm. this role. Um, so one last question, because we just have a few <laughs> couple minutes left. Um, it seems to me that not just sort of computer science and psychology courses would be useful, but maybe also someone who has an eye for design in general, like someone who wants to combine art with those other fields. Like, would you say that's accurate? Oh, absolutely. Um, so I took a, a very technical approach to UX uh, because I was a bit of a nerd growing up. Uh, but many of my colleagues studied or came to the field from some sort of art background. Uh, plenty have been in marketing firms um, or studied marketing. Uh, there are many entry points into this field and by no means is mine the only one or even the standard. Um, I think there, because the field is so broad with what we do each day. No week for me is really the same. And that really just depends on the stage of our product's life cycle. Um, skill sets have to come from like a lot of different places. And I think that's, it's really important to articulate that uh, those, those fields are just as valuable uh, to contribute to UX. Mm-hmm. All right. Listen, thank you so much. This has been all kinds of new information for me, which is pretty rare on this show. Like I tend to know what my guests are talking about. Um, so this is this was really helpful. Thank you so much, Nick. Oh, it's been great talking with you. Thank you so much for having me. All right. So we're going to take a short break. And when we return, Quinn Kelly, current student at Tisch School at NYU, one of the preeminent, if not the preeminent uh, musical theater program in the country. I know lots of people would argue, but anyway, it's definitely one of the best. She is going to be here to talk with us as soon as I get back. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. When it's time to go through the college admissions process, look to Bright Horizons College Coach for ethical guidance and customized support. Our educators will get to know your students' ambitions and talents, help highlight hard-won achievements, and create a plan for getting into a top-choice school. That plan includes helping your student choose classes and extracurriculars, create a college list, brainstorm and edit essays, and navigate college financing options. Visit GetIntoCollege.com to learn more. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Getting In, a college coach conversation. To submit a question for an upcoming listener Q&A segment or to suggest an idea for a future segment, please send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome, Quinn. Um, I'm now speaking with Quinn Kelly of NYU Tisch School. So excited that you're here today. Thank you so much for having me. All right. So um, let's just dive right into it. Like, why did you choose musical theater as a, as, as a major in college? You know, people would say that's not very practical, Quinn. So, <laughs> but I am very glad there are people out there who are committed to art. So just, yeah, tell us more about it. So I think it all started in high school when I was in the high school productions. I did one in particular my sophomore year that really made me feel like that was my passion and what I wanted to pursue 
And I've always had a really supportive family who was, who would always tell me to follow my passions because it's no fun to go to school for four years for something that you're not passionate about. So I did have to do a lot of thinking about what's practical versus what I wanted to do. But ultimately this is what really drew me in and really was where all my passion lied. So Mm -hmm. what I ended up doing. Well, and I, I mean, I'll just put in a plug here that the careers you go into are much more flexible than people realize. I mean, for example, one of our, of a colleague of mine or her major in college was performance flute. So you never know which direction you'll end up in. So, which I think yeah. is great. Yeah. So let's, let's kind of dig into it. I think one of the things that's very confusing for students when I talk to them, um, students and parents, like they'll say, I'll get on the phone with someone and they'll say, I want to major in musical theater. And I'll say, okay, do you want a bachelor of arts um, about, you know, or a bachelor of fine arts in musical theater? And they won't even know that there's a difference or what that difference is. So I'm hoping you could kind of explain the difference and talk about why I think you're in a BFA program, correct? I'm actually in a BM program. Okay. So I can explain all the differences. I have a few notes about it also because I that would be great. See, like a whole new thing. So yeah, tell me about the difference between a BFA, a BA, and a BM. Okay, so a BA is a Bachelor of Arts, and that's what a lot of liberal arts degrees are. They're just a BA. Mm -hmm. And so you can take a lot of core classes like math, science, history, um, English, a lot of those classes that you're used to taking in high school, but you take them at a college level. A BFA is a Bachelor in Fine Arts, which focuses on an intensive track of theater or visual arts. So you can get a BFA in theater or you can get a BFA in some other visual art program. So they have a lot of those in the Tisch School. I'm actually in NYU Steinhardt where I have a Bachelor of Music and the Bachelor of Music is specifically focused on a musical instrument. And my concentration is voice, which they consider an instrument at NYU Steinhardt. And so, yeah, those are kind of some of the differences. Okay. All right. So I apologize for getting that wrong. I don't know where I got that information, but I really appreciate you setting it, setting me straight. Yeah, uh, that is totally fine. <laughs> and especially because there's so many different music programs and different schools, it's, it can be very confusing at NYU. So you're totally good. Okay. All right. Well, thank you. All right. So tell me like, what is a typical day or week like in a, a BM program? So a bachelor's of music. Yeah. So um, in any kind of conservatory specialized program, you're going to have very packed schedule. I took 14 classes my freshman year, and I only took 12 classes this past semester starting into my sophomore year. And next semester, I'll be taking 10 classes. So it's a lot of class time, a lot of being present and really working on your craft. But really, there's no homework. You just have to make sure to show up because ultimately they just want you to be there so that you can practice, you can get feedbacks, you can interact with your peers and your instructors because that's ultimately what's going to help your instrument and your voice the most. Do you take any, I mean, I know you're not in a, you're not getting a Bachelor of Arts, so you're not in a liberal arts setting per se, Mm -hmm. but do you take English courses and do you take any of those courses, just fewer of them or... How does that part of it work? Yeah, I do. So at NYU Steinhardt, they have um, anybody who's taking a musical course is also taking a liberal arts core. 
And so I take, uh, in the span of my four years, I'll take four core classes. So one history, one, one English, one science, one math. And Mm -hmm. then if you have AP credits, some of those can transfer over as well. And then you'll have more time for electives if you choose to do so. Mm -hmm. And with those electives, are most of those going to be primarily within Steinhardt? Or can you take some of them within like NYU's liberal arts and sciences if you want to like, I don't know, take a bio class for fun, for example? Yeah. So I think that NYU is pretty flexible just in general, because it's such a big school and they want you to do as many things as you want to do while you're there. So I think that they are pretty flexible about cross, cross educating in different schools. And so I'm taking uh, communicative sciences and disorders class next semester, which is called anatomy and physiology of the speech and hearing mechanism, which I was really personally interested being a vocal major. I think it's important to know what my instrument looks like, how it works. And so I get to take one of those classes, which although it's not an elective, it counts for my science class. It's still really cool that I can take that class, even though it's in their CAS program, the College of Arts and Sciences, but I can still have the opportunity to take that class because they're pretty flexible about wanting to branch out and make sure you get all the information that you want or desire while you're at the school. Mm -hmm. So circling back, I just want to, kind of go back to your classes, like when you were doing 14 different classes, um, you de- it sounds like you didn't have homework, but you'd probably be in school, like from nine to five or something similar to that. Is that accurate? Is that kind of what it would look like? Yeah. So personally, I'm a morning person. So I would rather take an 8 a.m. than a 5 p.m. class. So my usual schedule is an 8 a.m. to 3 p.m. day. So some of my classes this past semester was song analysis, acting, dance classes. Um, What else did I have? You have one voice lesson per week where you meet with a private instructor to go over personal, personal things that you're working on. So, and personal repertoire. So Mm -hmm. those are some, a few of them. And then are you in shows as well? I mean, when does that start? Because I assume that there are performances and, Um, you know, so tell me about when that gets built into the, and how that works as part of your schedule. Yeah, of course. So that any kind of show that you do is going to be outside of your normal school class schedule. So you have to plan out your day and schedule time to go to rehearsals or go to extra, yeah, extra rehearsals really. So next semester I'll be in a, a dance recital for the master's dance education program at NYU Steinhardt, which is a really cool opportunity. So they let you audition for things outside of your school. So not outside of your school, excuse me, outside of your program. Mm -hmm. So although the dance education program isn't something that I'm currently in, I got to audition for it because they um, do a really good job of advertising and making a lot of different types of shows, a lot of different kinds of ways to perform. They make all that information available to students through email, through bulletin boards. Um, We have an online bulletin board for my personal program that they post a lot of information. So there are um, a lot of different ways you can be in shows and it's not just the traditional musical or not just the traditional showcase that a lot of schools often do one per semester. Mm -hmm. 
I, I found it interesting too, what you said about that there's a lot of different ways to perform. So I, I, I would imagine that most of these programs, even if your specialty is voice, that they want you to have multiple skill sets that you can bring, even if your specialty is voice. Is that accurate? Yes, very accurate. Um, we take one dance class per semester in my program. And obviously we're also taking acting classes in conjunction to our vocal studies classes. And if you want to do musical theater, you have to intertwine all three. You have to be a triple threat is what they say. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so they really want to prepare you for being able to have all those skills that you'll have the best. Mm -hmm. You'll have the best skills to succeed when you go out into the real world and start auditioning. A, a, a friend of mine who is no longer acting, but did act for a while after she graduated and managed to make a living at it. She said that when like she was she had quite a good voice as well and had trained a lot. And then she also loved acting. That was her favorite thing. But she said her she had a lot of discomfort with dance. So that was the part that was challenging for her. But most of the other actors, their challenge was with voice, but they were comfortable with dance. So it was just kind of interesting for me to hear about that. And it really emphasized for me that if a student wants to do one thing, they need to push themselves to be good at these others as well. Yeah. And I think that in my program, it's a really comforting environment and everyone's just trying to help you do your best, no matter what your specialty is or what the more challenging thing for you is. Everybody, teachers, peers, everybody there is just wanting you to succeed and try new things and really push yourself to be the best performer you can be. Mm -hmm. Well, that is wonderful to hear because I hear so that some of the schools are not supportive, that some of the schools are a little bit cutthroat. And I just think that's such a shame, you know, just because the field itself is competitive doesn't mean that the school needs to be unfriendly, right? Yeah. And I think that I had a lot of concerns going into a program of this sorts with such strict rules and so many classes and it feels so overwhelming. And having that competitive nature is always going to be part of the field. But mm. I think it's also important to find the people and the instructors, and you want to surround yourself with the people that are going to help you, not crush you down. Mm -hmm. So that's, it's something that I found really important about this program that that makes it really special. Okay. All right. So we have a really nice recommendation here for NYU Steinhardt's as a supportive place. So that's good to know. From your observation, because it sounds like you probably interact with people from Tish, would you say that they find it similar as far as you can tell? I think that it's a little bit more competitive at Tisch. And what I understand from the people that I know who are in the Tisch acting program, I don't personally know anyone in the Tisch musical theater program, but they find that it's more competitive, but they feel that the person that I know personally feels that they thrive in that environment and are mm -hmm. also really happy to be in that kind of program. Mm -hmm. So she really loves NYU Tisch and loves being there and acting and feeling like it's a little bit competitive, but how that kind of competitive spirit pushes her to do even better in her acting. Mm -hmm. So I think that it's a personal thing, but also um, I think the NYU Tisch is a little bit more competitive from mm -hmm. what I hear at least. Okay. So competitive, but not ridiculous. And, and yeah. I, I think, as you said, the match is so important for some students, maybe they'd want a place that was gentler for other students. They're not going to be happy in that environment and they're going to want some of that competition. So I think this is great information. 
All right. So let's talk about kind of the selectivity of these programs. It's in my position as a college counselor, it's always challenging for me to advise people because I worked at a a school where you were admitted based on your academics. Certainly your extracurriculars mattered, but, you know, portfolio was not relevant. I mean, it was in terms of like, wow, this is great. This student has really committed themselves to something, but they could have been supremely untalented and it wouldn't have mattered to us. What would have mattered was their transcript. Um, so kind of talk about what your application process was for um, a bachelor's in music. Yeah, of course. So I personally applied for 14 schools, which I think was a bit excessive. But um, during a time during the time of COVID and a little bit post COVID, it was easier to audition for more schools because they were over Zoom. So I didn't have to travel anywhere to do my auditions, which was really helpful for me. Um, usually when you audition for a school, they'll ask you to come in for your audition and fly to the school and they'll do an audition process in person. So the normal, the normal amount of schools for somebody going into an arts major is about eight to 10. I would say that's about normal for how many you should apply to, especially because they are more selective. So you want to give yourself a wider range of things that might accept you. Um, So the first part of the process is to send in a preliminary audition, which is where you're just sending in videos of yourself. And then if you get past that part, they'll do a callback, which is where then that's when you would go in for your in-person audition. Mine was an in-person over Zoom audition because of the times that it were. And I know that some schools are sticking with that with that method to save students money and also because it's easier to do things over Zoom sometimes and trying to schedule rooms and trying to schedule a lot of, it's just a lot of logistics. So once the preliminaries are over, you'll get a call back and then you'll go in for your in-person audition or your Zoom audition. And then after that, they'll send you an email based on how they think you did. And then that will be your acceptance or not. Mm-hmm. And did they indicate to you that any other, like anything beyond the audition was important in the process, at least for NYU, or was it really kind of mostly just the audition? For for every single audition that I did at all schools, you find all of the information on the website, which it's really hard to navigate um, college websites sometimes. So I would recommend personally going into Google and searching exactly the title of the program that you're interested in and then the school name instead of trying to go to the and uh, go to the school's website and then try and find programs it's a lot harder that way and then usually under the information about that program for the school it'll say all the audition stuff all the preliminary stuff then if you get past the preliminary stage it'll tell you what you need for an audition so for some schools i submitted dance music and a monologue. For some schools, I only did a monologue and my musical audition. Some schools required sight singing, which they did just in the actual in-person audition, but they let you know that sight singing was required before you went into the audition. So it's really so, so school-based that it's hard to say, but I'd say that's some of the things you can expect. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think your advice of sending students to the website is very, very good advice because it's all there. I mean, Um, I I actually think it can be a really good idea for students, even when they're deciding on programs, like research very deeply what they're requiring to see if, because that's one of the ways, one of many to find out if a school is a match for you. So, all right, well, we've, we've pretty much run out of time, but thank you so much for being on the show. Just so everybody knows, 
technical difficulties kept us from having Quinn on a couple of months ago. Um, but she she very generously came back and spent time with us in spite of being an extremely busy student. So thank you so much, Quinn. I really learned a lot. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on. And just one more website that I found out super recently. It's called The College Audition, founded by Tim Ivonicky. Sorry if I'm pronouncing that wrong. But you can go to thecollegeaudition.com, and he has a lot of programs for people that are looking to audition for music programs. And so I would highly recommend him, wish that I would have worked with him. It looks like he has a lot of good stuff for people looking into music programs. Okay. All right. Great. Yeah. All right. All right. So um, join us next week when we'll be talking about all the talking about the California state system of higher education. Everybody knows about the UCs, but the Cal states are really good options, too. And definitely join us on February 2nd when we'll be reviewing eight years of this podcast. Uh, that'll be Beth, Ian, Shannon, Vasconcelos and I. And finally, I want to remind you that you don't have to listen to our shows live. Every show is accessible 24-7 on the Voice America website. And we're here live every Thursday. Well, we're not live, actually recorded. But the show is released every Thursday, 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific. So check us out. Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and the team of experts at Bright Horizons College Coach. Join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.